Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Caixin Cynical Business Brief, brought to you by SupChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. First, a look at the week's news. The story of the day remains the U.S.-China trade talks, which are now in another two-month period of pause, while negotiators continue working on what is proving to be a very complex trade deal. There was some interesting back and forth between President Trump and Chief Negotiator Robert Lighthizer over the meaning of a Memorandum of Understanding, which took place in the presence of Chief Chinese Negotiator Liu He, who got a good chuckle out of it. Given the mercurial nature of the Trump administration, it's very hard to say what kind of progress or what kind of problems we are encountering, but by the time you're hearing this, things may have already changed. So check out Caixin and SupChina for the latest. Now, on to the week's news, and over to you, Ada. Canada's province of New Brunswick is closing all 28 of its Confucius Institute programs because of what it called the Institute's one-dimensional perspective of China. New Brunswick's education minister said the decision was based on concerns that teachers are not giving a balanced view of certain topics related to China. Schools in the province have been offering Confucius Institute programs aimed at teaching Chinese language and culture since 2008. My concern is we have an institute whose job is to put a very one-dimensional perspective of China into our schools, Education Minister Dominic Cardi said. The Confucius Institute, an organization affiliated with China's Ministry of Education that runs events and courses around the world promoting Chinese culture, has faced increased scrutiny outside of China, with detractors criticizing it as a tool of the Chinese government. Last year, the FBI said the agency had, quote, concerns about the Confucius Institutes, close quote, and was, quote, watching warily. The fate of mysteriously missing documents at the center of a high-profile case involving China's Supreme Court is taking on even more drama. A Chinese Supreme Court judge confessed last week to taking the key legal documents from a case involving a long-running contract dispute in a surprise development to a widely watched scandal involving the country's top court. Wang Linqing said he stole the documents 
Due to personal discontent with the court, his admission was all the more shocking because he was the original whistleblower who exposed the case of the missing documents in the first place. When the case first broke, China's top law enforcement and judicial agencies formed a special team to probe the case. Now, investigators have said in a statement that Wang stole the files due to a personal grudge, a judge grudge, he held against the Supreme Court and his supervisors. China's top banking regulator is stepping up an anti-money laundering campaign by imposing new restrictions on financial institutions as the government tries to rein in risky transactions. The China Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission's first new policy document of the year focuses on market entry, internal controls, and management structures, with a specific focus on anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing practices. The document outlines requirements for banks to track capital resources and to verify the background of shareholders and executives, as well as designate specific individuals to lead anti-money laundering and anti-terrorist financing efforts. The move came on the heels of a crackdown on financial risks and a slew of new measures to enhance institutions' anti-money laundering compliance, following suit with global counterparts. Recent national curbs on actors' paychecks seem to be making it cheaper to produce video content in China. Gong Yu, CEO of Chinese online video platform iQiyi, revealed that top celebrities were getting paid no more than $7 million per TV series produced by independent online platforms. That is a major drop from the $22 million per series that stars were commanding back in August, meaning that it's now significantly cheaper to produce original content, Gong said. Following a major tax evasion scandal last fall, China's media regulators imposed new limits on cast pay to less than 40% of total production costs and individual actors' paychecks to no more than 70% of all money paid to cast members. The rules did not specify an income ceiling, although Gung's words suggest that there might just be one. China's first court devoted to financial cases is aiming to give the country greater influence over international judicial practices in the high-stakes industry. As China further opens its financial industry to the rest of the world, the Shanghai Financial Court has taken on new tasks, including opining on high-profile international cases. The court, which started taking cases six months ago, is the brainchild of President Xi Jinping. It was established as a part of China's judiciary reforms and a campaign to strengthen judicial oversight over misconduct in the financial industry. The court said it would strengthen judgments on high-profile, cross-border financial cases to echo the national strategy of opening its financial system to foreigners, as well as those involving international finance trading rules and foreign defendants. It will also look to foreign courts for models on how to operate by bringing financial experts from abroad and will file financial cases simultaneously with foreign courts in areas such as derivatives trading and internet finance to increase its reputation as a global financial court. And for this week's corruption roundup, we've got Fang Fenghui, former chief of staff of the People's Liberation Army, who was sentenced to life imprisonment for corruption. Fang, one of the highest level targets of the anti-corruption campaign in the military, used to be a member of the powerful Central Military Commission. He was expelled from the Communist Party in October. Zhao Jingwen, former executive director and party committee member of state-owned investment conglomerate Citic Group, is under investigation by the state anti-corruption watchdog. 
and the former chairman of Duzhe, or Reader in Chinese, which has long been one of the most widely read periodicals in China. Publishing tycoon Wang Yongsheng was expelled from the Chinese Communist Party after being accused of corruption and of, quote, jeopardizing the party's cause, unquote. A Chinese pharmaceutical company has received approval to grow cannabis for medicinal and other industrial purposes in Yunnan province. Zhejiang Jinhua Kongba Biological, or Zhejiang Jinhua Kong'an Bei, will use the marijuana plant using a locally cultivated seed called Yunma No. 7, which contains less THC, the psychoactive constituent of cannabis, and be more suited for industrial and medicinal purposes, the company said. Yunnan province in China's southwest next to the opium-producing Golden Triangle was first legally allowed to grow cannabis in 2010. In 2017, Heilongjiang province near Russia received permission, and Jilin next to North Korea has filed paperwork to legalize cannabis growing. Konba's major pharmaceutical products are gastrointestinal and pain-relieving medicines. The company's Shanghai-traded stock got high last week, haha, rising 10%, and increased Konba's market cap by $250 million. Uh, Yunnan province is going to pot. <laughs> Ada, thank you very much. Let's turn now to some of Caixin Global's reporters for a look at some of the big news of the week. First up, we have a couple of health-related stories, and this first one really caught the attention of a lot of people uh, with us here to talk about it is Jingxuan Tang, a reporter at Caixin Global. Uh, Jingxuan, you wrote a story titled, Why Aren't People in China Dying of the Flu? Uh, this, of course, made me immediately click. Uh, tell us, what is happening here? Something strange is happening in China people don't seem to be dying of the flu. So this week, the National Health Commission released data on the number of people who were reported dead of influenza in January, and that was 143 people. What was noted about this number in Chinese media was that it was nearly as high as last year's figure for the entire year, which is 144 people dead of influenza in China. But what struck me when I saw it was how tiny that number was. China is the world's largest country by population. The U.S., Europe, Australia have anything from hundreds to thousands of people dying each flu season of the flu. It was just mind-blowing that there could have been so few deaths in China. And in previous years, in 2016 and 2017, only 56 and 41 deaths of influenza were reported in the country for those entire years. And even in Hong Kong, which is a part of China, but it's ruled under its own laws, many more deaths are reported due to flu per capita than in China. And Hong Kong is a city of 7 million people. So, for for instance, in 2017, in mid-2017, there was a pretty serious flu season, and 327 people died in Hong Kong, according to official figures. But in neighboring Guangdong, which is a mainland province, only three people died and that's 7 million people in Hong Kong, that's the population, and 110 million people in Guangdong. Okay, so the obvious question is, why? How can the rates be so much lower? So obviously with a lot of data coming out of China, um, there's a question of how accurate it is, whether figures have been adjusted based on whatever agendas local governments or other interest groups might have. But the thing that struck me about this figure is that it's so low that it couldn't plausibly have just been slightly doctored 
clearly this is considered a normal figure, a believable figure to be published. So I asked some experts what was going on here. One professor at the Hong Kong University School of Public Health, Ben Cowling, told me that these deaths were likely based entirely on reported deaths from hospitals. So this massively underestimates the number of deaths because most patients in hospitals in China aren't tested for influenza. That's what he told me. And whatever deaths are recorded are not being attributed to influenza. But also, two years ago, our colleagues actually spoke to a Chinese doctor in Beijing after the 2017 flu season to ask why there was this discrepancy between Guangdong's figures and Hong Kong's figures. They received a very interesting answer, which is that a lot of the time, doctors don't think that it's accurate to attribute deaths caused by complications of the flu, like pneumonia, or deaths of people with underlying conditions like cardiovascular disease who had the flu when they died to the flu. So that's another factor. Actually, that was going to be my guess, that they were just reporting the more proximate cause of death or, or possibly the underlying malady rather than chalking it up to influenza. Uh but that's fascinating. And Jingxuan, I hope you stay free of the flu and all other illnesses for the rest of this winter. Thank you, Kaiser. Thank you. Next up is Olivia Ryan with another health story, uh, this about mental health. Olivia, what do you have for us? So the China Mental Health Survey was published in The Lancet, uh, the psychiatric branch of The Lancet, um, a, a medical journal. And it is the first nationally representative survey done on mental disorders in China. It's the biggest one of its kind. And it shows, compared to previous mental health reports, that the prevalence of mood disorders and mental health disorders, sorry, are much higher than found in previous reports. So it wouldn't be an overstatement to call this the biggest or at least one of the biggest studies of Chinese mental health that has ever been undertaken then. Yes, it's probably the biggest. Olivia, tell us what struck you about the findings here. So the major things that struck me was, first of all, this was a government-funded report, which is a great sign for China's government really starting to pay more attention to mental health issues because, as we know, mental health is a, is a major issue that affects most people in some way. Uh, so that's a really, really great sign. The second thing is that the prevalence of mood disorders, especially depression, was much higher than in other reports that have been done. But we're not really sure if that's because they just had a bigger pool to choose from or if because people are more willing to admit that they have symptoms like this because there's less stigma than there used to be, although there is still a lot of stigma around it, or if it's just due to China becoming a more developed country and, and its rates of depression are starting to become a little bit more towards what you see in high-income countries like the U.S. or the U.K. or elsewhere. And finally today, it's Charlotte Yang to tell us quickly about what's happening in the world of Chinese film. Uh, first up, a film featuring Peppa Pig. There's a film about Peppa Pig, which called Peppa Celebrates Chinese New Year, that people had Chinese people had very high expectations on because the trailer before the release of the film was so successful. So during the Lunar New Year, a lot of parents take their kids to cinema, but came very disappointed. And they are saying that the trailer was actually better than the actual movie. So good trailer, crappy film. Yeah. And I take it it flopped at the box office. Yeah, and it flopped at the box office because nowadays Chinese viewers, they would look at how much you score the film to decide whether they go to see the film or not. And Peppa had a very disappointing score. Oh, well, uh, but Wandering Earth uh, did not flop. A big sci-fi blockbuster. Uh, but there's even bigger, possibly bigger news about the film right now, right? Film critics are calling this film one of China's you know, most successful sci-fi film. 
So Netflix、uh, has acquired the rights to stream this film in over 190 countries, and they will translate the film in 22 languages. So it's going to be wandering the earth on Netflix. Then,、uh, uh, briefly, what is this film about for those who haven't seen it or haven't heard much about it? The Wandering Earth is adaptation of a novel by the famous sci-fi author Liu Cixin. So the film takes place in a distant future when the sun is close to devouring the earth. And humankind must work together to move the Earth to a new solar system. I'm hearing good and bad things, but I do think I will see it.、Uh, this last film, though, sounds like something I'm more eager to see.、Uh, big news for some Chinese stars from the Berlin Film Festival. What's the big news from Berlin? So some very good news. China swept the Best Actress and Actor awards at the Berlin International Film Festival, and in a movie about the one-child policy. So the star of the film, the film is called "So Long, My Son." So Wang Jingchun and Yong Mei won the Silver Bears for Best Actor and Actress for their roles as husband and wife. So in this film, the couple's teenage son drowns, and family planning officials force Yong Mei's character to endure an abortion when she falls pregnant with a second child. That sounds like a great one, Charlotte.、Uh, thanks for taking time to talk to us, and we will talk to you again very soon. Thank you, Kaiser. You're very welcome, and that's this week's show. Thanks for listening. The Caixin Cynic Business Brief is powered by Sub China and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Tanner Brown with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Lucien of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Yufei for the music. Be sure to check out all the other shows about contemporary China in the expanding Cynica Network. And be sure to follow the news from China every day at SubChina. Subscribe to our newsletter at subchina.com. Take care.